From Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these episodes so we can explore a wider range of issues and stories in the drinks world. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Lyndon Pride, who's the co-owner of the world-renowned bar Cafe Dante in New York City. Lyndon, thanks so much for your time. Zach, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. As I was mentioning to you before we started recording, this is very fun for me because Cafe Dante was one of my favorite haunts when I was an NYU student back in the in the aughts. And uh, it's so cool that it's become this whole other animal now. Um, still good coffee, by the way, I should say. Last time I was there, I had a nice espresso uh, as well. But uh, but now this uh, this cocktail bar. So so tell me kind of first and foremost, what's your background like? And, and, and what were you doing before you uh, wound up in New York City? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, and just just to to your point about uh, the, the the history that you had with Dante sure. previously, I mean, I, we have people still walking in off the street, um, you know, every week telling us stories about when they used to visit Cafe Dante, and and mm-hmm. I have to say, uh, taking over the uh, the the ownership of such a public institution comes with it uh, a, a great deal of responsibility uh, in ways that were totally unexpected. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more about that, but I'd love to hear that it was a, a haunt that you used to enjoy yourself. Yeah. I have to ask now, since you bring this up, do you get people who come in who have no idea that it's a cocktail bar? Oh, yes, absolutely. We have people yeah. come in and they, they, say, <laughs> you know, they say, I've been coming here for 30 years and, uh, you know, it's not quite as I remember it. Or they come in, they say, I've been coming here for 30 years and nothing's changed. And I think to myself, well, <laughs> <laughs> We've been here for seven years, and I don't remember seeing you once. But um, it's yeah. you know, it, it, it's it's it certainly holds a um, a, a very important piece of uh, uh, culinary or, or, or gastronomic sort of nostalgia for for people in the village. So. Yeah. Um, we feel very privileged to to be a part of that that long story, actually. So, um, but look, I mean, I, I grew up in Australia, and and my mum is a, a, a chef and a, a food writer, and I was always kind of in the hospitality industry, um, and I think un unknown uh, to a lot of people in the states, Australia has a very rich um, Italian and Greek um, uh, culinary, um, mm. uh, culture. and uh, we had a lot of Italian and, and Greek expats move to the, to Australia post World War II. And with them, they, they brought, they almost hung on to their, uh, uh, traditions of great coffee and, and wonderful seasonal, um, uh, produce and food. And, and growing up in Australia on every other corner was a deli and, you know, with cold cuts and so forth. And so Italian Coffee shops and and great little trattorias and things were very much a part of life as we kind of grew up in Australia. So, um, uh, you know, working in restaurants um, from the age of seventeen, I started with a, a chef in Australia by the name of Neil Perry, who's uh, has a wonderful restaurant group called Rockpool. Um, uh, it was always a dream of mine to to be out of um, to travel to and then and then really to work in New York. I, I always saw New York as the, the mecca of, of the restaurant world. And uh, uh, I think a lot of that had to do with a lot of these wonderful old institutions that almost like living history um, that were so inspiring. Um, and in Australia, sometimes things kind of feel a little bit new and, and without the, the great history. Um, and so, yeah, New York was always on a pedestal for us. So, so finding our way here was somewhat inevitable, I think. Gotcha. And when you came to, to New York, was the idea all along... I want to open a, a cocktail bar specifically, or kind of like, how did the concept for what is now, well, maybe I should say this, what, how do you view Cafe Dante at this moment? What, what, how do you describe it? What do you see it sort of, what is it? And then was that the idea all along when you came to, to New York? Or did that idea 
kind of come to you some point uh, after arriving? I, I guess you know, the way that I would describe Cafe Dante is it's an, it's an all-day, all-occasion um, uh, cafe, bar, and uh, an eatery. So, I mean, you know, we open every morning for breakfast and coffee, and we trade all the way through. Uh, the lunch aperitivo hours into dinner and late night, so we're we're, we're open fourteen hours a day, uh, every day of the year, and 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 I, I guess it's an amenity to the community, um, the kind of the way that we yeah. do people to be able to fall in and grab a coffee or sit down and have a, you know, a, a three course meal or grab a cocktail. So I mean, we 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 certainly view it as uh, like a an all day all occasion venue, but you know I think. Um, I've been bartending since since I first got into into restaurants. Initially, I wanted to be a chef, but um, I was talked mm-hmm. out of that promptly, <laughs> which I'm grateful. Probably for, for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> and I found I found a lot more fun in the bar uh, where I could um, uh, explore and have fun with great cocktails and, and be a lot more social. Um, yeah. And so, bartending and, and bars was always kind of came naturally to to me because it was it was what I'd focused on or kind of what I how I got my apprenticeship in 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 hospitality. And the coming to New York, I moved here initially to work with a, um, a design and conceptual agency called Avrico, and they they did a lot of hospitality design, but also concept development and so so on and so forth. And um, you know, spending. Uh, nearly five years with them in New York, uh, I learned a lot about sides of the business that I didn't understand that I hadn't learned in Australia, which was, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, I, I guess the, the design and, and conceptual side of things. And, and um, you know, my wife basically uh, had moved to New York uh, uh, at the time. She, she had been supporting me from Australia because when I first moved here, uh, you know, I, I couldn't afford to really pay my rent. So I'm grateful that she was supporting me. But by the time she got here, she said, you know, you're never around. You're always traveling. You're always working. And, you know, if, if you want me to stick around, you need to, you know, we need to do something mm-hmm. together because uh, there's no other way to kind of get your attention at the moment because you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we decided to, that we wanted to open our own our own space. And at the time, we were kind of looking um, uh, at a few other different venues, also kind of in this area in the West Village. Um, and one of them was a, a space called um, uh, Beetle, which was on okay. Grove Street. And and um, uh, we got to a final kind of negotiating point with the then owner. And, and at the last minute, he, he said to me something along the lines of, you know, I'm not going to pay the brokers. So, you know, just fold that into your costs, which, which basically put the price of what we were – that we'd agreed upon up about 20%. Oof. And, you know, and I said, this is ridiculous. You know, I was still kind of yeah. learning my way around things at that point. And, and the next day he signed the space to um, Jody Williams and she opened Via Carotta um, in that space, okay. which okay. is obviously a wonderful restaurant, but it, it, it shifted our focus and, and um, uh, we were approached with uh, an off market deal for Cafe Dante. Um, it had been in that, the, the family, the Flotter family for, um, the better part of 40 years and the mm-hmm. father who, who was very much a hospitality man he you know he ran it um, uh, he was in his 80s and he'd handed it to his son and his son had kind of run it into the ground mm-hmm. somewhat he'd made it into um, an internet cafe and all sorts of strange incarnations yeah. and and the, the Mario senior said to us he said look I want um, I want Cafe Dante to live on, but I'm, you know, I don't want my son to run it and I'm not interested in doing it anymore. And Magnolia Bakery at the time was kind of banging on the door, trying to put a cupcake store in there. And, mm-hmm. and, um, um, we said that we would love to retain the name. And I think that, you know, it was a blessing that we missed out on the, the space on Grove Street mm-hmm. because 
we, we we're now able to kind of channel something that we'd really grown up around, which was this this um, Italian all day kind of cafe, uh, mm-hmm. into into a space that you know um, represented something far greater than we felt that we could kind of create in in, a, in 5, 10, 15 years, which was, you know, this historical uh, legendary uh, coffee shop. Yeah, because Cafe Dante goes back a hun- over 100 years, right? It was in the yeah. 1910s sometime? 1915. Um, yeah. And, you know, in that area, it's it's fascinating. That area, which was known as the South Village, is, is you know, Little Italy and the South Village um, are on either side of, of Soho, which was obviously, you know, the, the industrial kind of um, production of the, the garment district. And, and the workers mm-hmm. used to, the Italian migrants, and, and, the, and used to live on in this area of the South Village. And it was always very, very strongly Italian, especially around that period, around the turn of the century into the early 1900s. So, um uh, yeah, it's you know, and 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 even and to the point that we spoke about before, a lot of those people who come in and and share stories with us, you know, there's so many wonderful stories about the old Italian ways. You know, there, there's a table in the window, um, which which is we call table twenty, um, was the widow's table where every day at four mm-hmm. o'clock a, a group of women would come and have coffee, and it was always reserved for them. And um, you know, there was always a big game of uh, poker that was played downstairs in the in the basement, um, and and to this day like which is we converted it to our walk-in but it's got this huge steel door and very heavy bracing that you wouldn't otherwise need to kind of store <laughs> paper straws and things you know so yeah. um, um and and during the renovation when we we demolished one of the walls i found uh, a stack of five packets um, of bullets um wow it into the wall and yeah all sorts of kind of wonderful old things going on and amazing so I want to ask a question about operations that I find really fascinating because one of the things that is – you mentioned this, that, that you are not just a cocktail bar, that, that you do breakfast and lunch and dinner service, that you're open for very long hours. And that I think is maybe not completely unique among some of the great cocktail bars in the world, but it's definitely unusual for for a, what we think of as a you know evening and late night kind of establishment where, you know, frankly, I find it impressive that, that you know, you're able to have – uh, an operation that that includes all of these sort of services that aren't necessarily connected all that often to cocktails. That said, the, the, the question I have is, is it challenging to sort of, because presumably people walk in at kind of any time of day and assume, hey, this is one of the greatest cocktail bars in the world. I can get a great cocktail at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. or anywhere in between. H- how do you kind of handle that from an operation standpoint, as opposed to you know a lot of great cocktail bars that probably don't open until five or six o'clock in many cases? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a good question. And it certainly wasn't something that we, we were able to do right um, from the beginning. It, you know, we really had to work at it. And it, it was as Dante evolved. And, and I mean, I think one of the first drivers there was, um, uh, you know, it's a small space. It's only 900 square feet, uh, mm-hmm. 55 seats. And, um, you know, we were, we were averaging, um, you know, 500 and 550 to 600 covers a day pretty much through 2019 pre-COVID. So we, we had to be able to keep up with volume. And so one of the ways that we kind of um, had to evolve the drinks menu especially was that it had to be engineered in a way that could be based on speed and, and ease of replication. So a lot of the, like all our draft lines, I think, except for two now, which are beer, um, all have cocktails on them. So we do a lot of cocktails on tap. There's a lot of bottled cocktails that are that are that are batched and, and and diluted and frozen, and and those obviously lend themselves to being able to get drinks out quickly. But it also means that at any time during the day, um, and sometimes before we were busy enough to sustain it, um, you know, the 
somebody could jump behind the bar and make one of the drinks and they would be mm-hmm. uh, perfectly served consistent and exactly as as any as as they always should be because we'd kind of developed these systems that allowed us to um, keep up with the volume so um so yeah so i mean a lot of work and time had gone into uh developing developing those processes um but then also you know i think that our philosophy really has always been whether we're serving cocktail uh great coffee um you know um, non-alcoholics tea whatever it was we really wanted to try to chase excellence in in all of those fields so some of our you know regular customers who come in like bob comes in every uh four o'clock on pretty much every day of the week and has his um you know his his cappuccino and and his biscotti and and so forth you know he he he's one of our great regulars but not just for the cocktails, but because we kind of sure. try to focus as much on all the beverage and all the all the items as much as each of the cocktails. Very cool. And so, you know, I, I think that it, I want to talk a little bit about the cocktails because obviously that's for most of our listeners what they what they uh, you know know you for. But I yeah. think that one one thing that's also interesting to me is, and I've experienced this going to to Cavidante a couple of years ago when I was last in New York. You know. You guys have a really interesting take on well, take is wrong. I put it. I think one thing that surprised me was how many, how how much of the cocktail list seems really about what I imagine you would consider kind of the perfect renditions of very established cocktails. And I think sometimes, and, and this is what I wanted to ask about in part is, I think sometimes people think about craft cocktail bars, and maybe this was the case years ago. It's maybe shifted since then but but in a lot of times thinking about oh what have they what have they created out of sort of thin air right like what cocktails have they invented and and to me what what i think of and you tell me if i'm on the right track or not is like so much of what you guys do at dante is you know kind of perfection i guess you could call it of of established classics does that sound right yeah it's funny it's funny you know i think the phrase that we the phrase we use and and what we always come back to is this uh innovation through authenticity so mm. we try to find ways of um going back to the root or the the traditional service method um or or ingredients or or even ritual uh, that surrounds some of these classic cocktails and finding ways that we can uh use either um uh, better produce or a different technique or, uh, you know, more advanced um, uh, technology to kind of elevate uh, what would otherwise be a, you know, um, a, a classic cocktail that you can get anywhere. And I think that, you know, I think the Garibaldi is obviously a great example of that. And, and you know, that was inspired by, um, funnily enough, an Italian restaurant in Australia where mm. literally you'd walk off the beach uh, on Bondi Beach and, and there was a place there called North Bondi Italian. And, you know, you could still be dripping wet from the ocean and stand up at the bar and order a Campari and there was just mountains of grapefruit and oranges behind the bar and they'd squeeze it for you fresh. And there was just something so tantalizing about mm-hmm. the fresh orange with the bit of Campari and the salt water in the ocean and so forth. And so, you know, we wanted to find a way to to emulate that sensory moment um, uh, around a drink that was a very simple classic, um, you know, uh, cocktail that was probably better known for Campari as Campari and orange as opposed to the Garibaldi. So, um, you know, I think, that that kind of pursuit of, of finding uh, the best way and and the glassware and so forth to, to be able to present these drinks is always been at the you know the core of the way that we've developed the menu and um, you know when the bartender who worked with us um, at the beginning uh, when we first opened um, um, uh, who I'd worked with previously at um, Saxon and Prol um, Nara and Young you know we we spent a lot of time in those in those early early months and and year really saying you know really pushing and saying well what what will we be 
known for you know we don't want to inha- we don't want to bring it along anything that we've done previously we want to start fresh and and you know a, a big thing of what we used to talk about was you know some of the world's most famous brands you know you might you might love the the quality of a i don't know like a uh, you might splash out and buy a beautiful, let's say, I don't know, pair of Gucci shoes or, or one of the well-known brand. Now, they might be a beautiful pair of black shoes, but you love them so much. And next season, you go back and you don't just buy the same pair of black shoes again. You want to see the same tailoring, the same innovation, the same attention to quality. Uh, but you want to see how they've evolved. And, and you know, yeah. that, that was always a big part of, like, what are we doing that is interesting but is still core to our beliefs of um, presenting classic um, and, and innovation through an authentic approach. Um, and that's still really core to uh, how, we, how we continue to evolve the brand now. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the last couple of years for you guys. So obviously, you know, 2019, you're named the best bar in the world. That obviously, that obviously is a big deal and very exciting and, uh, and probably made you um, happy and maybe also a little scared. I don't know. That's a lot of expectation. What was, is there anything you remember from kind of when you found that out that was where you, was it expected or was it a surprise? How, how did you, that kind of strike you? It was an interesting year. I mean, it, it, Tales of the Cocktail, we won Best American Restaurant Bar. And then mm-hmm. they, they, they take the finalists who win uh, out of the eight categories. And then they announce their, their world's best bar out of those eight finalists. And we won that in, in, in July. Mm-hmm. That was unexpected. I mean, we literally fell off our seats. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and House of the Cocktail is, 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 is uh, you know, a special industry kind of um, um, very industry focused accolade. And then, uh, you know, that was astounding and, and really uh, immediately kind of, you know, we had to really lift our game. I mean, I think that people walk into any establishment with certain expectations and it's your job in hospitality to exceed those expectations. And uh-huh was all of a sudden the expectations got pushed through. Yeah. Um, um, so that presented challenges. And then obviously in, then in October, two and a half months later, at the world's 50 best, um, we were nine, number nine the year before, and, and we got into the top 10 and, and it just kept getting closer to the top spot. And, you know, I think we, we were all standing there in, with arms around each other embraced. And, you know, it, it was it was um, incredible uh, and and such yeah. a such a huge surprise and accolade and 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 ultimately really I think that you know coming you know when I really distill down why or, or how uh, Dante kind of kind of I guess was is is held in such high regard by so many people to win those two awards in the same year was I think I think it's really when people walk into the space it's how they're made to feel it's not necessarily just the drink in their hand but it's a combination of um, the history of the space, the, the the sense of hospitality and the service, and 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 the drinks, and and it all comes together in a way where it's kind of it's transportive. It kind of it yep. takes you to a happy place almost. So yeah, I mean, it, amazing, incredible kind of uh, 2019 to come off come off those two awards, and then and then you know we're very excited to be building towards opening a second Dante in the West Village at the start of 2020, and. Um, you know, that was due to open on the 5th of March or, or thereabouts. And obviously that, that didn't happen. So it yeah. was, it was a, it was a, it was a very high, um, uh, it was, we were coming off such a high to, into such unknown territory. And, and, um, um, I would say that actually, I think coming into COVID, um, and we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about the COVID process, but for sure, um, it was, um, I think that it, it actually, 
defi- it's actually defined our brand in, 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 and our restaurant and, and our bar and our program. Uh, it helped us define it so much better, I, I think, um, than, than we'd ever anticipated because uh, we had to strip back to basics and, and mm-hmm. focus on what, what we were passionate about and what we stood for and, and, and allowed us to really grow in, in a very special way without, without the mania and the, the, the frenzied kind of um, react, re- almost reaction that we had to have to winning those awards. Makes sense. So, so let's talk a little bit about that that challenge and then growth. So, so obviously, you know, we've chronicled on this podcast how you know many many different ways that people have did and, and have gotten through this last year and a half, and and we can talk a little bit about this. But what I'm what I'm mostly curious about is kind of is what you said this idea of redefining or or, or sort of uh, more finely defining what Cafe Dante stands for, and then also kind of how you've started to come out on the other side. And, and I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong on the details here, but you do now have a second location in, in Aspen, Colorado, right? So, so was that always in the works? Did that t- timing get shifted around because of COVID and, and what was maybe was or wasn't going to happen uh, with the second location in New York? Like how kind of what, what have you, how have things transformed in the last year and a half? Yeah, um, the Aspen project was not planned. It was it was came out out of COVID, and that was the that's okay. the third, that's the third location actually. Um, and, okay, um, two in New York and one in Aspen. But okay, yeah, um, we came. I, I think you know we, we we announced to the staff on the Monday that we were going to close uh, because of COVID, um, and then we reopened again on the Tuesday with to go cocktails because they changed the the mandate in New York. Um, but I think that for us. It, it kind of we we my wife and I especially it just didn't make sense for us to stop. Like first of all, employer based health insurance is something that never really really made sense to me. Um, sure. During a pandemic, especially, we're going to close our business and set all the staff out with no health insurance. It it just didn't feel right. And we had an employee who was pregnant, and 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 so we wanted and and also I think that we I don't know serving and looking after people is actually obviously at the core of what we do and, and we wanted to continue to help. And, and so that was really our, our, our number one goal coming into that COVID period. And, and I think that, um, uh, as with that as kind of our North star, we just continue to be able to, um, evolve what we were doing, starting from, you know, um, supplying hospital meals to the local hospitals. And, and we ended up, we were doing um, about 500 meals a week, and we did that for um, 15 weeks. Um, and uh, then the, the development of the cocktail uh, to go programs, which then evolved into bottled cocktails, and 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 you know the bottled cocktails. Then you know I'm fast forwarding through a lot of this, but ended up through that's fine <laughs> with partnership with, um, with John George uh, here in New York, where. You know, he, he was in a similar position, but he wasn't able to retain bartenders. So he was asking us to help uh, uh, develop bottle cocktails so they could sell them in the restaurant so they could keep going. I see. Um, and that landed a, a, us in a project at um, the South Seaport uh, called The Greens, which is uh, they had oh, okay. um, outdoor glass cabins through the winter during COVID. And, and we were serving our bottle cocktails there. And and, and I think just the the... the the innovation and, and the striving to stay to, to stay open really um, mm-hmm. and, it enabled us to be very creative um, and and there was kind of there was no limits you know it was it was everything interestingly enough you spend your whole hospitality career thinking about how do I in how do I lift the guest experience within these four walls how do I make the music yeah. better the light better the, the the plates the glassware and then all of a sudden 
we had to think about how do we create our experience entirely outside of the four walls? Like how yeah. does our brand travel? How does it end up in people's home? What's that experience when they open the bottle in their house? Like, like, like what are they, what music are they listening to in their home? Like how do we, how do we connect to people outside of these four walls? So it totally changed the way that we thought about um, our business and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and that really was, I think, core to how we were able to, to not only stay relevant, but survive um, and, and also um, uh, realize this opportunity with John George and then ultimately Aspen. Um, yeah. You know, I think I, there was a journalist um, I remember uh, in um, June last year who asked me, you know, a lot of people are very interested in how to develop a bottled cocktail program and the strategy behind it. And, and you know, could you provide some pointers, please? And and. <laughs> I remember, I remember saying, okay, so so pretend that somebody takes away your business, your landlord is still asking for the rent, you want to make sure all your staff get health health care, like you, you wanna provide it you wanna provide a home and for your kids, like like that's basically the motivation and the strategy. Like <laughs> whatever the hell you can. Yeah. You know, so um but do you think so I mean it's interesting because I think you know you mentioned before that one of the things you had already sort of realized in terms of designing a, a program and a service that could work in in the Cafe Dante space and with the you know the the realities of it was was a lot of pre-batched bottled draft cocktails so so you were maybe more positioned than some who hadn't really you know a, a cocktail a great cocktail bar who where everything was made to order it's going to have maybe a harder time translating that is that is that sound right yeah, and I think funnily enough, we had you know our coffee cups uh, for to go coffee had on the, because we wanted to promote our Negronis because people at the start at Cafe Dante were just coming in for coffees and they didn't really yeah. know about our Negroni program and they they were also you know this is 2015 and people Negroni didn't quite have the same um, uh, yeah. following that it does now and so we put on the other side of the coffee cup next time join us for a Negroni mm-hmm. and so that was a, a, that was literally sitting on the counter when we were talking about how do we do this to go cocktails and i was like well look at this let's just serve the negronis in what it was maybe always deemed to be you know yeah. put the negroni in the coffee cup that says negroni and and we also had uh, uh stickers left over from Mattel's of the cocktail um activation that said you know one for the road and and we stuck them on plastic cups and so ah. we, we certainly had collateral and i think that those were visual, visually appealing things to be able to put on Instagram and so forth that people thought, well, that's fun sure. and cool and let's go check it out. And yeah, and, and I would agree, like some of those, some of those, uh, the science, if you would say behind, you know, the, getting, making sure the dilution's perfect and the temperature's right and so forth in, in some of those more complex cocktails so that we could, we could um, produce them and, and get them out uh, to go much easier. Uh, we definitely had a head start there, but I mean, I think it really came down to um, just trying to constantly understand who our consumers were and what they were looking for. Yeah. And and understanding probably that that was evolving over the period of the last year and a half, that what people wanted in, you know, May, June, July of 2020 is not maybe what they want this year. Absolutely. And, and, and it has, you know, and fascinatingly, um, you know, it really, it, it definitely hit a pinnacle for us uh, with the evolution of this whole new, new service uh, standards when we came into the holiday season last year and, you know, we were able to sell bottled cocktails and, and as gift packs for Christmas. And, and it was just, it was, it was fascinating. I mean, we turned into a, I felt like it was like a, a scene out of Breaking Bad, you know, with like, <laughs> and like catching cocktails and pouring them. It felt like a bootleg being operation because, you know, uh-huh. people were buying gift packs and all sorts of things. And it was, it was amazing to see how people had, had evolved and, and responded to that. But, you know, and here we are now, um, in, in New York with no 
to-go cocktails, unfortunately. Um, yeah. But still, we get um, you know we get inquiries, many inquiries every week. Can can I get a Negroni Sessions pack? Can I get a Martini Hour pack? I want to do it for a birthday, and uh, it's amazing how much that resonated. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, very interesting. Last question for you. Well, first, I want to hear a little bit more about about the Aspen project, um, and then I have maybe one final question. So, kind of how because that's just recently kind of come online, right? Yeah, we, we opened in uh, we opened at Christmas last year, but it, it's all oh, okay. with the winter and the summer. Yeah. Okay. So, so how what what is it like? I mean, I I, I have I've never been to Aspen, so you know, right. I'll have to, you'll have to you have to you have to help me understand. Yeah, sure. And look, the the, the, the I guess the the impetus for Aspen was at the time, which was like I said, Christmas last year. Well, there was no indoor dining in New York, um, and mm-hmm. we had a pretty summer and fall. Uh, and we had a good team of staff and and we realized that we were going to lose a lot of business because who wants to sit on the sidewalk in New York in the middle of January? I mean, some people did, I mean, bless them, uh, but not a lot of people. And in, a lot of smaller towns had kind of taken off and, and people had moved out of the big cities and, and we saw there was definitely a spike in, in, in places on Long Island and so forth in terms of where, where consumers were. And we thought, well, Aspen and the, the mountains in winter would be a great place to be outdoors, safe, healthy. So if we could provide an amenity there, then, then it would be very appealing uh, to, to be able to send out some of our staff out to work so that we're not going to lose them. And um, at, at that time, um, uh, Jama, who owns the Surf Lodge and, and the Snow Lodge, approached us and said, "Look, we've we're not going to go ahead with the project in Aspen this year because we can't maintain it at twenty five percent occupancy. But we have this big outdoor deck um, with your bottled cocktails. I think it could really work. And so, uh, you know, we jumped, I, I headed out to Aspen and and um, we said yes on the Monday and we were open on the Saturday. And that, I think that was wow. the beauty of the bottled cocktails <laughs> was yeah, we, it really could travel very easily. You know, so we opened yeah. with a the big menu and and um, um, obviously Jamer had the infrastructure and the space there and, and we just went for it and um, um, it, 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 we had a wonderful winter there and, and even with um, uh, no uh, indoor dining we were able to provide a, a, a great service to, to people who were you know safely kind of living within the mountains outside of a big city and so so the winter winter was wonderful and 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 we shut it down um, as you kind of do coming into the spring and 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 reset for a summer program and and uh, we reopened in um, in May for uh, the summer season and and uh, moved down the street to the St Regis uh, which has a, a place called the Chef's Club which um, EMP gotcha. winter house there and yep. and um, very different crowd but still uh, for the summer but. A lot of, a lot, interestingly, a lot of uh, people who we know from New York are there and, and, and uh-huh. to support us. So we're coming to the end of the summer season, uh, which will culminate in Food and Wine Festival in September, which we're very excited about. And, and the goal is now to repurpose and, and do Winter 2.0 um, in Aspen uh, with, with a full service bar, not just the bottled cocktail. So gotcha. yeah, we're excited for that. Very cool. Well, then I really thank you so much for your time. Really fascinating to hear about um, the, the evolution of of Cafe Dante and, you know, kind of what, what you've been through and what you're, what, what, uh, what you see coming, coming up in the future. So again, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And, uh, I look forward to stopping in, uh, for, for a coffee and a cocktail next time I'm in New York. Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for your time and, and also for taking the time to speak to us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcast.
and it really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.